Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, a philosopher who adheres to Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. I discuss issues of contemporary importance and issues of philosophic interest on this channel, which is hosted by the Ayn Rand Center of the UK. And we have with us today Alejandro Duran, who is going to uh, talk about some of the business side of it. Go ahead, Alejandro. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll just be hosting in the name of Nikos today. And basically, if you want to support the Android Center UK, you can uh, do any kind of membership starting on £10 a month. And I'll be tracking Super Chats live uh, in case you want to pitch them to Harry today. They definitely do want to. I know them. Our topic today is abortion is a right. So we have to begin by distinguishing rights in the political sense from rights in the moral sense. Rights, when I say abortion is a right, is not to say that it's necessarily the right thing to do for a person who wants to abort to abort. It is to say that the person should be the one who, just the mother should be the one who decides and should not be interfered with by the government. So the first issue we have to talk about is what is a political right as opposed to what's good, what you ought to do, what is your personal moral responsibility. So there are things that are your uh, that would be immoral to do that you have a right to do for example to take drugs or even worse to advocate socialism you have a legal political right to do that the government cannot interfere with you properly today it does it does interfere with you if you want to take drugs and that's why we have the crime problem that we do. But in political philosophy, when we come up with a, a valid theory of rights, it allows for people to take actions that do not harm anyone but themselves. And there are other things that delimit what is right for you as a person to do and distinguish it from the narrower category of what you, well, I, I guess it's actually a wider category of what you have a legal political right to do. For instance, it's wrong to be rude. It's wrong to uh, boast to others about accomplishments that you haven't made. But the government can't come and arrest you for that. It's not a violation of anyone's rights. So you have a legal political right to be rude, take drugs, advocate socialism, be obnoxious, be a phony. Where does it stop? You don't have a right to violate the rights of others. And the question is, how do you define that? Are you violating the rights of some entity when you, or not you, but a woman 
a mother to be, is she violating the rights of the baby to be, maybe you want to call it that, that she's carrying? I don't want to call it that, but there I did it. So what are legal political rights? What are individual rights as opposed to uh, what is morally right? The source of political rights is morality. It is not God. Rights are not a gift from God, which would be pretty tough if they were because there is no God. So we would have no rights. It's not that you have a human shape. It's not as some animal rights people, which is an oxymoron, state the ability to experience pain gives you rights. No, it's morality that gives you rights. And the only consistent morality is the morality of egoism. So how do we distinguish what I've been trying to distinguish here before we get into the morality of egoism? Uh, I said that the sphere of the moral is wider than the sphere of rights, but rights are moral principles. Rights are moral principles saying who should have the choice? Who should have the choice? Should you choose whether you take drugs, whether you're obnoxious, whether you advocate socialism, or should some other person or some entity like the government make that choice and enforce it on you? So rights concern who is the proper one to choose and act on his choice. Now, I said that rights come from morality, but they only come from the egoist morality. Only if you believe your life is your own to live can you maintain that you exist by right, that you have a right to your life. All the other rights, such as the right to the pursuit of happiness, the right to property, the right to liberty, depend upon and are expressions of the fundamental right, which is the right to live your life as you see fit, with the proviso that you don't interfere with other people living their lives as they see fit. What is the way that you live your life? What is the moral principle of selfishness, of egoism, if your life is your ultimate highest sacred value, how do you achieve it? How do you survive? By reason. There's no other way to survive by reason. Well, wait a minute. Can't I survive by just following others and doing what they do? And I noticed that they go to the supermarket. So I go to the supermarket. I notice that they put in credit cards. So I put in a credit card and pay for things. Well, where did the supermarket come from? Where'd the credit card come from? How were you, how were these things bestowed upon you so that you now can follow others? Reason. Someone had to develop supermarket 
as opposed to grocer. And someone had to use their reason to become a grocer. And someone had to use their, lots of people had to use their reason to figure out how to get food, how to grow food. The agricultural revolution, as it's called, is about 30,000 years old. So human beings existed for hundreds of thousands of years without knowing how to plant. They existed as hunter-gatherers. The fact of a supermarket depends upon an agricultural system and depends upon a long chain of intermediary suppliers who are all using their reason to produce goods that the unthinking just buy by doing unthinking work doesn't turn out too well for them if you just try to exist irrationally without putting in effort. You're not going to hold down a job for long. You're not going to have that credit card. You, if you're irrational, you're going to overspend your credit card. It's going to be taken away from you. If you don't produce the equivalent of what you consume, then you must be parasitizing someone who's going to object to that. So even the people who are parasites, even the people who are moochers, even the robbers are counting on reason, someone else's reason, and counting on them not taking that, the fruits of that reason away from them. Now, Christianity and the religions in general are a big help to the parasites because Christianity and the religions taught men, no, you should let yourself be parasitized. That's the highest virtue. Look at Mother Teresa, a saint, officially now a saint, because she didn't pursue her own self-interest. Of course, she didn't help anybody really either, but she didn't pursue her interests and she abased herself with the untouchables in, in India. So isn't that the good? No, that's not the good. That's the bad. Well, the, the morality of egoism is a big topic that we're not going to get really deeply into. The point I want to make is if you want to live, if your life is your own and you want to live it, you have to use your mind. You have to be awake. You have to be aware. You have to think. And that is how a human being survives. That's why we uh, imagine that we are changing the climate of the planet. And I suppose to some small extent, we are, not the way climate alarmists think of it, but we have such a grand influence on nature because we've got science and technology, which means reason. Reason, in the words of one uh, biologist, Theodosius Dobchansky, great evolutionary biology, foresight, he called it, has raised man to the status of the Lord of creation. Reason is our means of survival, our basic means of survival. But, but reason isn't automatic. 
your heart beats automatically. If your eyes are open, you see automatically. You digest the food you eat automatically. You have emotional reactions to things that happen automatically. But figuring things out is not automatic. It's volitional. It's up to you. It's something you can do or not do. If you don't do it, you have to survive by parasitizing the thinking, the reason of those who do, which is an immoral thing to do. But the fact remains that reason is not automatic. The use of reason is not automatic. Thinking doesn't happen just by being awake. And if people do a certain thing to each other, they stop the thinking. That is a very vague formulation, but I'm, since I am thinking, I'm gonna tell you what I mean. Since it's up to you whether you think or not to think, the question comes up, well, do other people have an input here? And it depends on what you mean by input. They can give you material for you to either think about or veg out, space out, and not think about. Like what I'm saying now, you can pay attention or evade it, drift. Let your mind go. Think about something more immediately interesting to you. I don't know what that could be, but some of you have some of that. So normally your thinking is not controlled by other people. In fact, always it's not controlled, but basically you are independent of other people metaphysically, meaning by the nature of existence as such, your brain is under your control, not anyone else's. Parents, priests, teachers, media experts, gurus on the web, even me, do not implant ideas in your brain. You have to accept them. You accept them either actively because you see why they're true or why they're false and you reject them, or passively. It feels good, sounds right. Yeah, okay, I go along. That's up to you. But there's one thing that can stop your control over your mind that can interrupt it. And that's the laying on of hands. I can bash your skull in. I can kill you. And you have no, you go out of existence. You have no control of your mind. I can point a gun at you and threaten to kill you and stop you from acting on the basis of your thinking. I can make your thinking irrelevant. I can make it a game instead of real thought. You think, I'm going to go over here. I point my gun and say, no, you're going over there. I shoot you. What happened to your thinking about, I should go over there. Nullified, negated. Physical force can stop the mind. It can't turn on a mind. You can't point a gun at a person and make him think. Not real thinking. You can do, you know, do some 
automatized pseudo thinking re recite things you know you can make him say his prayers if he's memorized his prayer but you can't point your gun at him and say come up with a good new idea or i'll kill you in field x the mind doesn't work that way force stops the mind force physical force is the only thing that can interrupt the connection between your control over your brain and your actions in the world. It stops you from acting on your judgment. So we have two alternatives. When we think about society, when we think about how we would like society to be organized, either everyone uses force whenever they want, or no one uses force. Footnote, except in self-defense against force, but that, that's the wrinkle that come later. Let's talk about coercion, meaning extortion, threatening, trying to gain values from another person by force. Either that's okay or it isn't. If you say that's okay, yeah, it's the war of all against all. Grab what you can. The biggest brute will win. Yeah, what will he win? Starvation. Force is incompatible with reason. Reason produces the wealth. The more that force is used, the more that the production of wealth is stopped. And every other good value, like friendship, point a gun. And someone says, I want you to like me. If you don't like me, I'm going to kill you. Oh, I like you a lot. I think a lot of you. No, it doesn't work that way. So values cannot be gained by physical force. They can be protected by physical force against someone who's trying to steal them from you. You can use force in retaliation to destroy the destroyer of wealth or other values. But you can't uh, have a society where it's the war of all against all. That's what Hobbes thought society was. And he described life as poor, solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. A memorable phrase. That's why I remember it. The the Conditions in Somalia with the feuding warlords or any other area where rights are not respected and the rule of law does not exist show that you can't have a social system and production and peace and happiness if it's open season and force is not barred. Climax, that's what rights do. Rights are nothing more than statements you cannot force someone. You cannot take away their freedom. Well, what is freedom? Freedom is the absence of force. Freedom is the ability to act on your judgment without someone else coming in with his gun or his fist or his club. That's what freedom is. 
Some people are disappointed that it's a negative. They talk about negative freedom and positive freedom. Well, there is no such thing as positive freedom. That just means that's a, a, a euphemism for depriving someone else of his freedom. Yeah, I want positive freedom. I want the freedom to have an education. I want the freedom to have access to medical care. I want, I want an access uh, to a Ferrari. I want good things. I want freedom. Yeah, well, who's going to give them to you? Where do they come from? Well, we don't have to ask that question, do we? Yeah, it comes from forcing others to give up their values for you. So either you advocate a society based on universal freedom. Everybody can act peacefully. Nobody can start the use of physical force. And if anyone tries, he'll be met by the government. Or you have the war ball against all. There's no in-between. You know, there's no things like, well, people whose last names begin with C can use force, but the rest of the population can't. That's not exactly what you call a stable and consistent organiz organizing principle. And the first thing I would do is change my name to begin with C. Either everyone stops from exploiting through physical force other people, or no one does. You're not going to have, oh, the, um, the parasites get to parasitize, but the rest of us just have to let them suck our blood. You can have that for a century, but it's not stable because the parasites have subparasites. And the subparasites have sub subparasites. Once you establish the principle of need or some other criterion entitles you to steal from other people, you're going to be stolen from. So the only two universalizable, consistent positions are the war of all against all. We shoot it out every day in which case there's no civilization and we all starve, or you have the original American system of the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, which entails the right to private property. And no one is legally allowed, no one is granted the right to violate the rights of others, abortion. Now we've got the difference between rights and morality in general. Morality in general says be rational. Rights say don't use force on others, except in retaliation and self-defense. You should be the one to choose. No one can force you to submit to their will with injury as the coin of the realm rather than values. Do this or I'll beat you up, not do this and I'll pay you $1,000, which is the reward for cooperating. But do it my way or I'll make you suffer, maybe kill you. Okay, so those are the alternatives. What about abortion? Is there a right to abortion? 
Well, there's no right to murder. That's what I was saying. There's no right to initiate force. So it comes down to what is the entity in question? What is the fetus? What is the other entity, the woman who, who has it? And what is the um, relationship between the two of them? And the relationship is one of them is an undeveloped thing inside the body of the other, who is a developed whole human being, the woman. So we have some, in the early stage of fertilized egg, and then over the months, more and more differentiated and uh, developing uh, uh, hunk of stuff uh, with claims, some people say, against the mother. But it can't. It can't have a claim. There's a philosopher called Judith Thompson at MIT who posed this question. Suppose I woke up, it's science fiction question, but suppose I woke up, she writes, <clears throat> and found myself strapped into a bed and the neighboring bed was a world famous violinist whose vascular system was hooked up to mine. So my heart <clears throat> was circulating his blood and my blood was flowing into his veins and arteries. <coughs> I guess it flow into his arteries and returned from his veins. And the doctors tell me <clears throat> this, excuse <clears throat> this violinist has a rare condition that he needs in order to keep living, he needs to live off of some human host in this way. His own heart and circulatory system are not capable of doing the job. And we found you when you were asleep. So we drugged you and we hooked you up. Now your heart and your veins and circulatory system are keeping this world beloved violinist alive. And you have to stay here for nine months. You can't live your life. Maybe not even after that. Professor Thompson rightly said, I would have no responsibility to remain in that situation. I would not surrender my life or nine months of it to keeping even a world famous violinist alive. I might choose, I, I'm now putting words into her mouth because I read the article about 40 years ago and I don't remember, but speaking for her, I might choose to keep him alive and to lie there for a week, hoping they would get some other way to do this, but I'm not going to, I, I have no responsibility legally to remain as a host for this person's continued survival. It's not my fault that his heart can't take over the job. Why should my life 
be sacrificed to his life? That's a profoundly egoistic question. And the answer is she's right. There's two levels here. One is, even if it were an adult human being, if it has to live inside your body or in this, you know, through tubes next to you, and you can't go about your life, you have a perfect right to get rid of it, even though it means the death. It's not your fault that it means the death of the violence. And that's selfishness because the, the basic answer to the claim that the woman has to have the pregnancy, has to bring it to term, has to raise the children, the basic premise of that is she has no right to live her own life. We can take up the question of what if the woman puts it up for adoption? But I think you can see that that doesn't meet the issue in principle. In principle, a part of her body, which is what this thing is, cannot, has no rights and cannot, no one on its behalf, so to speak, can demand that she carry it to term if there's an easy way for her to abort it. I think in arguing about abortion, and I'm going to take questions in, in a little while after I make a couple of killer points here. In arguments about abortion, it's important to get rid of the mystical element. It's important to get rid of the soul. And well, this is a person in there who's like me thinking and conscious and so forth. So before I will discuss abortion with anyone, I want them to agree that abortion is a right within the first 48 hours. No one maintains there's anything but a fertilized egg. Maybe a couple of cell divisions, you know, right after fertilization. Do you agree that that thing has no rights, that the mother can abort it as she could uh, bite her cuticle, which is a cell, you know, on the skin of her finger, a living cell, or cut out an appendix or get knee replacement? all of which involve killing cells in her body. So if the person says, no, you don't have the right to abort a fertilized egg, I can only see a mystical religious source for that. I don't think there can be any point in arguing, well, what happens at birth that makes you say once born it has rights, but 30 seconds later, uh, prior to that, it didn't when it was just emerging. And where do you draw the line if the head is out? Is that, does it have rights? I would say when the umbilical cord is cut, but you could argue, you know, it's, it's just not worth discussing what happens uh, in the borderline between birth and almost birth. If the person believes 
that there's a soul and a human nature in the fertilized single cell or the blastomere, which has 256 cells max, is still just a clump of cells. So first, before I'll discuss anything about, you know, past the immediate fertilization and if, a couple of days after that, I want to get agreement on you have the right to abort then if you know, you know, like the morning after pill. So, I mean, these things do exist. And religious people believe that the soul enters the fertilized egg, which is uh, just crazy superstitious nonsense. So if you want to maintain that, I'm not even going to discuss it. But let's now turn, if, you, if we are okay on fertilizing the <laughs> aborting the fertilized egg. Let's take, you know, a few months in. And people have seen pictures of things that look, you know, pretty human. And ask, can you abort this? There we draw upon this, I draw upon, and Ayn Rand drew upon, the, the second major distinction. The first major distinction was you can have a right to do something that you shouldn't do. So there can be times when you shouldn't abort, but you have the right to do it. The government can't stop you. The second major distinction is between the potential and the actual. An acorn has the potential to grow into an oak tree. Water has the potential to freeze. Things can do things that they're not doing at present. This is Aristotle's concept of potentiality. What is, is one thing. What can be, even what will be, is another thing. The acorn will be an oak tree unless something interrupts it. But it isn't an oak tree. And the fetus is not a person. And I think I have a good way of convincing you of that. If you're open to this, uh, open to reason in this discussion. Take the um, late term fetus that is not a lot different from the born baby in structure looks pretty much like the, the baby that's going to be born. Take that and imagine that it's going to come out of the womb, but it's never going to change. That potential is not there for this damaged thing. It's always going to be that fetus. It's never going to be able to set up. It's never going to be able to talk. It's never going to be able to stand. It's never going to be able to um, digest its own food. Would that thing have rights? Is that a human being? People are sympathetic to stopping abortions and saying it's murder because they run the movie ahead in their minds. 
they see in the fetus the boy or girl that is to be. But it isn't to be if you abort it. It's not there. The acorn is not an oak tree. So when they talk about an unborn child, that's a contradiction. Do they view themselves as undead corpses? They are going to die and become corpses. So can we cremate them now? What will happen in development if things are allowed to continue is not what is now. And what is now is not a person. They like to say it's life. Sure, it's life. And so is a mosquito and so is an amoeba. But it's not an independent living being. It's inside the mother's body living off the mother's system. And it's certainly not a human being. So it's, uh, it, it's running the movie forward. You think oh, it'll be born, it'll grow, it'll smile, it'll laugh, it'll go to school. No, just imagine that it's always gonna be that fetus. It's not gonna mature. Now it might be wrong to kill it if that were true. I mean, I think it's wrong to wantonly kill a puppy. A puppy has no rights. You have the right to kill a puppy, but if you're some kind of sadist and you go kill a puppy, that's sick and horrible. It's immoral, but the government can't stop you from it. And it might be that if you wantonly with the same kind of uh, sadistic, sick, twisted mind, kill a nine-month-old fetus just because you feel like it, that that is just as horribly immoral or worse. But that doesn't mean, to go back to our first distinction, that the government has the right to interfere with you in doing it. You could be shunned and should be shunned if you have no reason. But I mean, how often does that happen? Most abortions happen because the mother wants to have a life and she has the abortion. When I say most, I, I bet it's 99%. The mother has the abortion as soon as she can and doesn't just wantonly decide when the thing is on the order of a lower animal that she's going to kill it. But even if that goes on in a given case, the government can't intervene. You can, you know, apply, you can cancel culture that person and should, but it's not a matter for legislation. Uh, let me, um, Alejandro, take some questions. You wanna read some from the chat or questions or, you know, we call them questions euphemistically. They're often attacks or soapbox oratory, let's see what they are. So far we have two, and one of them is a comment and the other one is unrelated. And the, the comment is from Marilyn and she says, carrying a child for nine months going through labor and then giving the child up for adoption could be heartbreaking or at least traumatic. It may be the wrong time to have a child, but it's complex. What do you think? It's maybe the wrong time to have a child, but what? 
it, it's complex. The complex is you, I guess. You, you cut off as far as I can hear in your audio. But oh. anyway, I think there's a moral question raised in having a, a, a child and putting it up for adoption. Now, and you know, years gone by, abortions were so risky that this was a necessity. I mean, I know in the um, 1700s in England, I read uh, in history that they would find babies on the roadside. Poor women would have babies, could not afford to feed them and would leave them to die on the roadside. It was a common sight. So yeah, in a primitive society, well, I mean, that's not primitive, but a pre-industrial society where there's not much wealth, uh, you may have to leave the child at the church door. But now you don't have to do that. And the question would be, what would be, wouldn't you be relinquishing your responsibility as a parent, if you're bringing that child to term, having the birth, at that point, you have a responsibility to it to raise it right. And if you give it up to strangers, there's a moral question. I'm, I'm very leery of that. I think in some cases it has to be done, but I'm very leery of that. It, it, it's too cavalier. The second question, uh, sorry, my internet connection, it says that it's unstable. Um, so tell me if you don't hear it correctly, but um, it, it's, it has, I think it has to do a little bit with uh, something that related to what you said. And, it's, and he says, speaking of the socialists who believe that one aspect of force involves an employer not giving you employment, is it even worth engaging with such a mentality? It's a, as I if they blame their metaphysical nature on the employer. I could not get that Sorry. from a social. It started on socialism and then it broke up. Sorry, let me try again. Can you, you hear me? You want to type it into the chat? Would that be? But try it again. Speak slowly. Okay, I will. Um, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. So Corey says. Speaking of the socialists who believe that one aspect of force involves an employer not giving you employment, colon, is it even worth engaging with such mentality? It's as if they blame their metaphysical nature on the employer. Yes, I think it is. I get the question. Uh, a socialist who says, well, the employer... Uh, is forcing the workers to take jobs. And so he sets the terms and, but, and that's force because they have to eat. And he's got all the bargaining power because he's got plenty of money and they have very little because they have to eat. They need a job to survive. That's force. And the questioner, Corey, uh, rightly says, the to, to add some words, the fact that a person needs to have food is not the doing of the employer. That's in the nature of man. That's what we call a metaphysically given fact. What the employer can do is make it easier for you. 
you don't have to go to the riverbank and try to catch a fish or, or find a clam or go out in a park and look for berries. He makes it very easy for you to get food if you cooperate with him. But it's not his doing. But the question was, is it worth arguing with such a person? Yeah. I mean, particularly if they're young, it's not. I mean, I remember when I heard that argument the first time and I thought, yeah, that's right. I never heard that before and I didn't think it myself. So, yeah, I, I would. Um, there are lots of things I would uh, try to explain and persuade people of. That a fertilized egg is not a person is not something I would argue about. That the person believes that that's a person, then I don't have any basis for discussion. He's rejected reality for the Bible or something. His friends, uh, I don't know what. So um, was there another question or should I go to another topic uh, related to this? We just have Enrique thanking you, but that's it. Breaking up again, but... Oh, sorry. No, there's Go there's nothing else. Okay. So, thank you. Um, Ayn Rand gave a talk at Fort Hall Forum uh, that I, I used to uh, have a, a journal called um, The Objectivist Forum which the bound volume of is in my hand, but it's kind of disappearing because of the green screen. There we go. And there's a little journal that every uh, two months came out with a small um, series of essays. And, and I published, I got the rights to publish Ayn Rand's uh, Ford Hall Forum talk in Boston, in which she covered um, she covered uh, abortion and in, you know, it was a written out talk, but she delivered it orally. And when it came time to put it in print, the issue of viability came up and she had a statement uh, that, you know, you could argue about the final period of pregnancy when the fetus is viable but not about the first stages when it's just a clump of cells. And I got into a discussion with her about, you know, I said, well, you, because I was editing that with great trepidation because uh, she was uh, so much more knowledgeable and advanced and the creator of Atlas Shrugged and so forth. And I was 32 or something. But I, I questioned her use of viability. And I said, well, you know, you make the distinction between the potential and the actual. And when you say viable, you mean has the potential to live, not is living, and viable meaning outside the womb. Obviously, something is living, those, that, that thing inside the mother is living but viable means it could be taken out. And if it were taken out, 
maybe require an incubator or maybe not. Maybe it could survive on its, you know, the normal way as a uh, premature baby. Say it's in the eighth month, something like that. And I said, but isn't, you know, viable, confusing the potential and the actual? It's not vying yet. So why do you have this in there? And she said, well, it has the human shape, the human form, I think she said. And I don't remember what I said back, but I argued with her. And she grabbed a pencil and struck out what she had written and wrote, a human being's life begins at birth. So viability itself is a term for potential. And I convinced Ayn Rand of that. I think I did. Anyway, she changed the wording not to say viability. And I think it's important not, you know, not to buy into, well, it's viable now. And that's pretty much the same as living. I'm employable. That doesn't mean I have a job. Uh, a woman is marriageable doesn't mean she's married. I'm uh, uh, infectable. Take a negative. I, I could be infected with COVID. It doesn't mean I am infected with COVID, fortunately. So it remains, you know, putting the ubble on the end means you're talking about a, a potential. And it's the actual that has rights, not the potential, an actual human being. So uh, I think this distinction between what it is and what it might become if we continue along a certain path is absolutely fundamental. And that's why I think the taking the example, suppose it's never going to be anything more than what it is now, is a great way to illustrate that it's not a person. But I also uh, I want to acknowledge that Leonard Peikoff, uh, Ayn Rand's uh, best student and closest friend, had uh, a stressed in his presentation, it's a part of the woman's body. It's not an independent thing. It's living off the, um, the mother. You know, people sometimes make a big deal. Well, what's the magic about birth? Why is it, you know, inside, it's outside. It's just a change in position. No, it isn't. Inside the womb, it is living off the mother's blood. It is not breathing. It is not perceiving. It is sensing. It can respond to sounds, pressures, temperatures, light and dark, but it is not perceiving, let alone the next stage, which is conceiving, having ideas. So it, there's a big difference between breathing on your own, digesting your own food, circulating your own nutrients that you've taken in through your own mouth, having perception of an external world through your eyes, 
and the absence of all those things. And Ayn Rand said at one, in one such discussion with someone who said, well, look, it's just all a matter of degree. She said, well, why don't we use the line? We have to draw a line. So why don't we use the line that nature provided? Birth. You can make an argument that even the newborn who's been, you know, uh, umbilical cord cut and it's two days after birth is really uh, not a human being. You could make that argument. I'm not saying it's, it goes through that it works, but we, by generosity and, you know, erring on the side of not allowing a human life to be taken, we grant right, the right to life. We, we recognize the right to life for any separate born uh, human being. But to then want to push it back, that's already generous is what I'm saying. Because the, the source of rights is people who can think and act on the basis of their thinking. So we extend it back to the line that nature provided birth, but it's, it's absurd and immoral to extend it back further. Why immoral? Because you're forcing a woman to surrender her life, part of her life, if she raises the child, which she probably has the responsibility to do if it's born, it's a lifelong responsibility. Ayn Rand took parenting very seriously. She regarded it as a, a terrific responsibility that uh, should be approached rationally and with positive motivation because you love the child and want it and want to see it flourish. And you need to think about what the child needs cognitively, not just in regard to its body. So it's not something that you can just say, oh, have the baby and then what's a big deal after that? It's at least 16, 18 years of constant concern and care, which really interferes with the career if you have a demanding career. And the concern remains throughout life, even after the, you know, the, the cliche is that the 90-year-old mother still regards her uh, 75-year-old son as the baby. Because you automatize as a parent, you automatize the caring for approach. And it's, it takes a lot of effort to uproot that. So the moral is selfishness. The reason why you cannot get rid of abortion, that is illegalize abortion, is the woman's life is her own to live. Again, we get back to either everybody owns his or her own life or nobody has any rights and it's the war of all against all. And that's unthinkable. It's the end. It's, it's uh, starvation misery, mass death. Uh, is there another Alejandro, is there another question?
We have two. Okay. The first one, I think you've already answered, but I don't know if you want to add anything to it. It has to do with why doesn't the fetus have rights? Because why doesn't a puppy have rights? Because it isn't a human being. It isn't separate. It's a, it's a usually welcome parasite on the body of the mother. Usually welcome. I mean, most women are pregnant because they want to be. They want to have children. But in some cases, it's unwanted and they do not live for others. Not even for a world famous violinist, let alone for something that is not yet an independent human being. Next question. The second one is, uh, are there any advances in scientific knowledge that may have modified the objectivist view of abortion, info that wasn't available when Rand was alive? No, I mean, it's not a scientific issue. I mean, you wouldn't call it science to know that a um, fetus is inside the mother and, you know, let's suppose, I mean, what, what would it be? Suppose you're in a primitive world where they don't even know what a fetus looks like. That wouldn't change anything. So if we know the details of when the fingernails grow and, you know, the kind of thing that anti-abortionists like to point out, that doesn't change the fact that that thing a is inside the mother's body living off of it. B would require the sacrifice of the mother's own life in order to uh, continue in the womb when the mother doesn't want it. And C is a potentiality. It's not human yet. It's a potential human, but it's not an actual human. Uh, we just have like one minute. I have 3.59. So is there another or should I? I can, you know, try and wrap up. Yes. Maybe I should do that. You may think that in certain circumstances, it's wrong for a woman to abort. But in the name of individual rights and civilization, you have to say the government can't stop her by force from getting rid of a part of her body to which she would otherwise be enslaved. The fact that it is uh, going to, if she doesn't do that, going to become a human being, I mean, maybe it'll become a college graduate. Maybe it'll become a Nobel Prize winner. It doesn't have the prize in the womb. All it has in the womb is that, what? That structure, that, that potentiality to grow and to develop. So don't confuse the potential with the actual. Don't discount individual rights. Thank you.
and I hope you tune in next week.